All right, Mark chapter 12. I need to ask you guys tonight to do something a little bit difficult, um, but I think it'll help. So I'm, I want you guys to imagine that this is the first time you're reading through the gospel of Mark. I want you to imagine this is really the first time you've ever heard of Jesus. That, that can be hard for some of us, but this is the first time you've ever heard the story. So you don't know that Jesus is going to die in a few days. You don't know that he's going to rise from the dead in a few days. You don't know all the other things. You don't know that he's going to come out of all of this stuff yet. You don't know. This is the first time you're, war- you're walking through this. Now, why am I asking you to do that? Well, in the text we're going to look at tonight, there's actually a lot of tension and a lot of irony. And a lot of times we miss that if we already know the end. We just skip right on by it. And I want us to appreciate what Mark is writing here as we, as we go towards the end of Jesus's earthly life. So at the end, we'll fast forward to the present, but I want us to, to try as much as possible, pretend like this is the first time we're walking through the life of Jesus. So Mark chapter 12. This morning, we saw the parable of the tenants. We saw at the end of the passage in verse 12 that the religious leaders are seeking to arrest Jesus because they hate him so much. But they're actually kept from arresting him because of his immense popularity with the crowds. Remember in chapter 11, Jesus rides into the city and the people love him so much. The religious leaders aren't able to arrest Jesus yet. And the question is now, are the religious leaders going to be able to arrest Jesus? And if so, how are they going to do that? Well, what follows in Mark 12 are at least four questions targeted at Jesus. The religious leaders are going to pose these questions in an attempt both to discredit Jesus' reputation with the crowds and to get him to commit treason against the Roman government. That's how they're going to try and seek to arrest Jesus. Tonight, we're going to look at the first two encounters. There's a lot at stake in these encounters. There's a lot of tension and irony. So let's look at the first interaction in Mark 12, verse 13. Thankfully, before we get right into the interaction, right into the dialogue, Mark actually gives us a few hints as to what's going on. We see the narrator's introduction. So look with me at Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So this story automatically starts out with a pronoun, and they. So in order to understand what's going on, we need to figure out who is the they. So in tracing the pronoun, we end up back in Mark eleven twenty seven, in the section Pastor Brent preached on a few Sundays ago. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come to Jesus, and they ask him, whose authority are you doing this? Like, who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus then tells them the parable of the tenants, and Mark twelve twelve says that they are trying to, to they, oh, let me just read it, Mark twelve twelve. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they go away, and now, in verse 13, they send to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Who in the world are they? Well, the Pharisees, obviously, are some of the most influential and um, political parties of the time of Jesus. Remember that? They were, uh, a lot of them, they were strict and zealous. They adhered to the Old Testament law. Um, the Herodians, though, we don't know a whole lot about them. They're actually only mentioned twice in Mark, and one time in Matthew. 
We do have a big hint in their name, though. They uh, were very loyal to the Herodian kings, to Herod. And there's uh, good evidence that they differed a lot from the Pharisees, but they have a lot in common in that they both hate Jesus. And they have a shared goal in trying to trap him in some of in his talk. One commentator says that this is an official delegation with the aim of discrediting Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus with a question that is sure to secure an answer that will not make everyone happy. Now, just stop for a second and feel the irony of this, that you have two groups, one, a very religious group of men, ones who pride themselves on knowing God's word and living it out in minute detail, and they're coming to Jesus trying to trap him in his words. The fact that they would trap anyone, let alone the Son of God, in their words is very ironic and should stick out to us that these religious leaders are trying to trap somebody. Ironic. Well, now that we know what the narrator wants us to know and who's coming to Jesus and why they're coming, let's look at what they actually say. In verses uh, in 14 through 17, we see a flattering lead-up and then really difficult questions. Look at verse 14 with me. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, it's really interesting. This, this whole lead up before the questions, verse 14, this is really just setting Jesus up for the question. We, we know you don't care about what people think, so please give us your unguarded opinion. We know that you're not swayed by what people look like, but you actually truly teach the way of God. Again, do you sense some irony? If Pharisees and Herodians actually believed that Jesus taught the true way of God, they would not be attempting to trap him. These men are really slick. They're they're trying to inflate Jesus' ego up so maybe they can trick him into saying something that would betray him. However, what they say about Jesus is actually true. It's not flattery. He does teach the true way of God. He is not swayed by appearances. He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. And Jesus isn't shaken by their attempt at flattery. And then we come to their questions. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? I think those two questions kind of explain each other. And knowing that this question is coming from those who want to trap Jesus, I want to explore how could this question trap Jesus? I mean, it seems like kind of an innocuous question. I mean, how could asking whether we should pay taxes or not trap Jesus? Well, we have to start out by saying that the Pharisees and the Herodians are asking Jesus a very political question. And furthermore, their very question is an either-or question. Either we should pay taxes or we shouldn't. And so that's really important to know. And it's also important to know what taxes are they talking about. It's not the IRS. It's not, uh, it's not anything like that. It's, it's a Roman poll tax. And so what is that? Well, it was a tax paid by each male to the Roman government. And in 86, when the Roman Empire took charge, the Romans ordered a census and subsequent taxation. And while all taxes were unpopular to the Jews, this one was particularly offensive because it clearly communicated Jewish captivity. It clearly communicated, you are not independent, you are not a nation, you are under Roman rule. 
This tax was paid using the denarius, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. So how could this question possibly trap Jesus? Well, if Jesus said that taxes should be paid to Caesar, he will disappoint many in the crowds who wish to throw off Roman rule. Further, a yes question would perhaps lead many to think that he's not the Messiah, since the Messiah was perceived to be one who would free God's people from their oppression. So he would lose a lot of popularity with the people. But I think what they're really gunning for is that they should not pay taxes to Caesar, because if the Pharisees and the Herodians are able to get uh, Jesus to say that they should not pay taxes to Caesar, they will then be able to go to the Roman leaders and say that Jesus is just another zealot trying to overthrow Roman rule, and he would then be subject to arrest for treason. I think this is the preferred method of answering. They're they're kind of trying to lean towards that. They want him to say this because then they have easy grounds to go to the Roman government and say, look, you have somebody who's opposing your government. You need to arrest this guy. So in other words, they think they have Jesus trapped regardless of his answer. Either way, they think it's a lose for Jesus. But Jesus isn't thrown off by their flattery, and he's not thrown off by the trickiness of their question. Look, at me at, look, look with me at verse 17, or 15 rather. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus knows these men's hearts. He, he goes straight past their flattery, straight past all of their attempts to be slick, and he, he questions them, Why do you put me to the test? I'm sure those are not the words they were expecting out of Jesus' mouth. Certainly, this would have perhaps shaken their confidence that they could actually trap Jesus. But then Jesus does something interesting. He asks for a denarius, and they produce one. And while Jesus doesn't have a denarius on him, the religious leaders manage to find one, which is interesting. Now, Jesus' next question seems pretty elementary, right? Whose likeness and inscription is on the coin? But I don't think any of us in this room could perhaps answer that question either. So um, I actually found a picture of an old coin from that time, a denarius. And it's interesting because this coin carried the engraved image of Caesar with the words, son of the divine Augustus. This claim on this coin would have been extremely offensive to Jews because the coins would be considered idolatrous because they had a graven image and they claimed to be deity. So many Jews would try to avoid using them completely by using copper coins that didn't have any image stamped on them. But Jesus asked the Pharisees and Herodians to produce a denarius, and they do. And in doing so, Jesus masterfully discredits their self-righteousness. The leaders find themselves in no place to discredit or criticize Jesus because they're the ones who had the coin in their pocket. Well, Jesus asks them whose image is on it, and they say, Caesar's. So Jesus then answers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Jesus completely corrects the presupposition behind the entire question. Do you see that? The Pharisees and the Herodians put loyalty to Caesar and loyalty to God as opposed to each other. It has to be one or the other. It it can't be both. So pick one, Jesus, and Jesus says no. He corrects their presupposition and states that both must be honored at the same time. Give to Caesar and give to God. He's saying that the normal paradigm for a Christian is compatible loyalties. Now, 
what does this actually mean? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, in this context, it's clearly referring to the Roman poll tax and to Roman money as well. I mean, Caesar has control of everything that bears his name, including the coin in their pockets. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't give a limit or an exception in this discussion. He doesn't say that if you don't agree with how the taxes are spent or if you don't feel like you're benefited by the government, you don't have to pay taxes. He, he just says, pay your taxes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You're not God over Caesar. Caesar's over you, so give Caesar his coin. I mean, God controls Caesar. You don't have to worry about that. In other words, I think a good way of saying this for us is that Christians should be the best taxpayers. But how often are we some of the worst taxpayers? I mean, how often do we talk, act, and think about taxes like there is no God? Like, we don't see paying our taxes as loyalty to God. We somehow think we could better manage the world than whatever political leader is in charge. And Jesus says that's not our place. He says simply pay your taxes. And that's it. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says render to God the things that are God's? This one's a little more difficult because the extent of this statement isn't defined by the context. So we have to take this statement as pretty open-ended. God has full claim of everything. Whatever God demands or commands or desires of his people, he has to get. There's no limit to what God owns. I mean, even the very coins and bills that they use to pay Caesar and that we use to pay taxes are God's. I mean, our days belong to God. Our, the, the air we breathe belongs to God. Our meals belong to God. Our work belongs to God. Our downtime belongs to God. Our vacation belongs to God. I mean, you can go on and on and on because everything belongs to God. But do we actually live like everything belongs to God? I mean, do, are we like aware of that through our days and our choices and our routines? Render to God the things that are God's. Do we live like we belong to God? These are just some thoughts that I think as we look at this phrase, it's appropriate to think. God owns everything, so do we live like it? Look at how the Pharisees and the Herodians respond. This is fascinating. At the end of verse 17, and they marveled at him. After seeing this exchange, we're left thinking, that's a pretty good answer by Jesus. He avoids the, the trap, and that's how they respond. The text says they're utterly amazed. One commentator remarks that there's a gentle irony in Mark's closing comment that his adversaries are utterly amazed at Jesus. It's appropriate that men who had come to ensnare Jesus through unguarded statement should sense the devastating effect of the authority displayed in his word. They're utterly amazed. As they stand utterly amazed, Mark records another encounter. And this time it's going to be a different group of people, totally different question, And Jesus is going to answer them in a totally different way. So look with me at Mark 12, verse 18, the beginning of verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. Now, here we have the narrator's introduction again. And this is really, really helpful. The Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, denied the resurrection. They held that the Torah was binding for them, and like that was it. It was only the Torah. And they believed that the Torah didn't teach it, didn't teach the doctrine of resurrection, so they didn't hold to resurrection. This piece of information is going to be really important when it comes to their question. 
And they asked Jesus a pretty long, complicated question. So let's read it in verses 19 through 23. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, this is a pretty complicated question. It's a hypothetical question and an absurd one at that. Now, the first part of the question, they lay down the custom of Leverite marriage, which um, Pastor Paul taught us a few weeks ago when we were going through Ruth. That was when a husband died, the next of kin was to marry the woman in order that she might be taken care of and so that the name of her husband could continue. This is clearly outlined in Leviticus and modeled in Ruth. This is something that Jesus would have already been familiar with, but the Sadducees are laying out that precedent um, so that they can build their hypothetical situation. Now, the hypothetical situation is a bleak, extreme, and uh, almost, if not impossible, situation. And their question is a puzzling one. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, here's where the information from the narrator helps us. Is this question sincere? We don't have any indication from Mark that they're coming to trap him. But is this question sincere? And I think based on the fact that they don't believe in resurrection, then we'd have to say no. They're presenting a hypothetical question and then assuming a resurrection, so they might show Jesus' claims to be false. I mean, remember, Jesus has already prophesied about his own death and resurrection three times in Mark. So if the Sadducees can trap Jesus in this really technical hypothetical question, they can easily dismiss his own claims concerning his own resurrection. So this is another test for Jesus. How will he answer? This is a tough question. Jesus said to them in verse 24, look with me. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, right out of the gate, Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue. Jesus comes out and condemns their knowledge of the Scripture and summarizes that they do not know the power of God. Think about this. Jesus is saying that men who've given their lives to knowing the Torah don't actually understand those Scriptures or the power of God. Now, what don't they know about the power of God and the Scriptures? Jesus is going to go on. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's interesting that he addresses marriage first, not resurrection. And since the Sadducees' question revolved around that issue, it's puzzling. But here, Jesus is going after presuppositions again, just like he did in the last question. Here, Jesus is going to correct their notion that life in heaven must be just like life on earth. Sadducees are assuming that if there's marriage on earth, that means there has to be marriage in heaven. And Jesus plainly says that people won't marry or be given in marriage in heaven. Now, this statement opens a whole can of worms. You read seven different commentaries, you'll get seven different views on Jesus' statement 
that people won't marry or be given in marriage. The question's like, because the text says that people aren't given in marriage or that they don't marry, does that mean that people can be in heaven and married already? Or what about my spouse who's already gone to heaven? What will my relationship to them look like? Or what does it mean when Jesus says that we'll be like angels? Well, those are all great questions, but the text doesn't answer any of them. And other passages could perhaps speak to those, but Jesus' point here is that life after death is different from life right now. And therefore, hypothetical questions about the next life, based on our experience now, aren't helpful necessarily to ask. The bottom line is that we can trust God, that he knows best and he does all things well, and that heaven won't be a boring place or a painful place. And we can just trust him with that. But he addresses the marriage question first. And he says, no, your presupposition is wrong. But then he goes further and proves the resurrection from a really unlikely passage. Look with me uh, again at his answer in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Now this, this, in this section right here, the narrative kind of slows down a little bit and Jesus is going to draw out an argument. And we want to understand this argument because Jesus is proving resurrection from this text. This is an important text. Like Jesus could go to any text and he goes to this one. So first we need to know where does this text even come from? Well, it's Exodus 3, 6. If you remember, this is the narrative of when God comes to Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness. The cry of the people of Israel and their bondage in Egypt moves God to select Moses to lead the people out of captivity. I mean, this is pretty big. Imagine Moses thinking through what will lie ahead for him. The challenges, the problems, the pressures of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, there is a lot ahead for Moses. When God comes to call Moses, he encourages Moses with the fact that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why would God do this? Why would this be an encouraging or powerful statement to make to Moses? Or why would Jesus quote it here as proof of resurrection? Well, let's see how the argument works. Now, your first thought might be, it's pretty simple. Look at the grammar. You see the verb. God is the God of Abraham, not he was the God of Abraham. So, like, he's alive, right? Like, if God is, well, that would be nice. But the only problem is Exodus 3, that phrase is actually verbless in the original language. It's implied and inferred from the context, but... Uh, the verb tense is actually also determined by context. You can't look at the text and see a verb and say, oh, that's exactly what it is. That would be nice, but it's not that way. So uh, this argument isn't based on a verb tense. It's based on something much, much, much bigger. Jesus is making an argument that resurrection comes from the very character of God. Future resurrection is inseparably tied to the character of God as he is revealed in Scripture. Now, this argument follows a few basic principles, uh, truths that we know about God. One, that God is ever-living. He is Yahweh. One, that God is the ever-present helper and deliverer of his people. This is something that Moses would have already been familiar with by the time God comes and talks to him. He would have been familiar with God's dealings in the past. The third truth that this depends on is that God is the covenant-keeping God. He cannot go back on his word. He is trustworthy. Therefore, 
if that kind of God chooses to identify himself with the names of his long-dead servants with whom his covenant was made and whom he committed himself to protect, those people cannot be simply dead and forgotten. Now, one commentator, R.T. France, does a masterful job at explaining this. I'm going to read his because I couldn't do a better job of writing it. He says, If God has assumed the task of protecting the patriarchs from misfortune during the course of their lives, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune that marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hopes, his protection is of little value. But it is inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarchs some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death, of which all the misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are only a foretaste. If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant, and of which the formula, the God of Abraham and of Jacob and of Isaac and of Jacob, is the symbol. It is in fidelity to his covenant that God will raise the dead. Another commentator says, Resurrection is based in the fundamental theological understanding of Yahweh, the living God, and the implications of his establishment of an everlasting covenant with his mortal worshipers. This is the reason there's a resurrection, because of God. He doesn't enter into eternal covenants with people only to leave them dead after a vapor-long life. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they are alive, because God keeps his word. That's why resurrection will happen. God doesn't let death have the final word. Now, that's a little harder to get at than just looking at the verb, but Jesus is unfolding this masterful argument for why the resurrection will happen. And then he concludes by saying, God is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, why should we care about this argument for resurrection? I mean, why why should we really take the time to look at Exodus and theorize about, like, why, why should we follow this argument? Well, resurrection is a big deal. Our salvation hinges on resurrection, at least according to the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 22, Paul lays out a vital theology of resurrection. Follow along as I read in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So without resurrection, we don't have hope of salvation. It's, it's all pointless. We might as well just live it up right now and die when we die, because it doesn't really matter. But there is resurrection, so we live for that day. Our resurrection is vital for salvation, but it also gives us a living hope and encouragement now to obey. You look at a text like John eleven twenty five, 25, where Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You look at Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should give us encouragement and hope that not even death can separate us from the love of God. There is resurrection. I mean, think about it. What, what gives us hope when relationships around us in life come and go? Like, what gives us hope when following Jesus is hard and costly? Like, what gives us hope when we feel completely alone in life? The resurrection. And while life is fleeting, it's a breath. Thousands and millions of years from now, God will still be your father. He will still be our provider. He will still be with us. That's encouraging. No matter what's going on in life right now, remember that God will always be your God. When life's difficult, be encouraged that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. This reality uh, emboldened Paul to live. It fueled his obedience. I mean, so what if someone laughs at you? I mean, like, so what if someone stops talking to you because you love Jesus? So what if you don't get that promotion? I mean, like, so what if someone kills you because you love Jesus and want others to know? Like, so what? Like, death doesn't stop us from God. Death can't keep us from God. That's encouraging. That should fuel our obedience to God every day. And the resurrection reminds us that one day, Jesus will come back and make all things new. Think of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's where we're going. So when life gets difficult, remember, we don't die and stay dead. It gets better from here. Way better. So whether, whether you're older, and the reality of passing away from this life is closer than you thought it once was, or maybe you're young and you think everything's going well, don't forget God. Be encouraged and challenged by this resurrecting God. It is his very nature to enter into eternal covenants with mere mortal worshipers. Now, Jesus has one final closing statement. The end of verse 26, he says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
you are quite wrong. Now, this statement answers his rhetorical question at the beginning of his interaction. Is this not the reason you are wrong and you don't know the scriptures of the power of God? You are quite wrong. doesn't leave any question there. The Sadducees, who knew the Torah so well, spent years and years and years studying it. And Jesus points out a verse in their own book, and they totally missed it. They totally missed it. And here we aren't given the reaction of the Sadducees by Mark. We're given it in another gospel. We're not given it here. And I think Mark does that to let the weight of Jesus' condemnation sit on the reader. You are quite wrong. We have two accounts of men coming up to trap Jesus, and Jesus ends up not only avoiding those traps, but correcting their presuppositions. What's interesting to me is that Jesus assumes that the Sadducees should have seen this argument. Like, they should have known that there's a resurrection from Exodus 3.6. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have gone to that verse to prove resurrection. Like, and you know, I'm like a seminary student, and if, like, I, that's not the verse I would have gone to, yet Jesus is saying, like, you should have known. Like, you don't know the power of God or the scriptures. Like, you have them. Like, you should have known this. Um, just, this text has been sitting on me this week that, like, how often do I fail to spend enough time in the scriptures to where I know them that well to where I can make conclusions based off scriptures like Jesus does? How often do I fail to even ask God to show me himself and these truths in his word? Do I actually even ever beg God to do that? I mean, I, we have to think, brothers and sisters, that if we study the text, if we study the scriptures, we get to know God. We get to know realities like resurrection. We get to know realities about our God and who he is and what he's promised to do. But are we content to be people who simply know a lot about the text? Are we people who could quote really long passages of scripture without ever meditating on their implications for our daily rhythms of life. Yeah, I got the scripture memorized. Like, I'm sure these Sadducees probably could even quote what Jesus quoted to them, like from the top of their mind, but they hadn't actually thought about how it should affect their life or their theology. I think Jesus' example of understanding the scriptures here should push us to study the word well, to wrestle with the word, to meditate on the word so we might understand it. It takes work, but God is gracious. He answers those requests to understand him. So are we that kind of people? The condemnation sits heavy. You are quite wrong. And that's the end. Now, as we've looked at these two interactions, we can see that Jesus is clearly the authoritative son of God. I mean, no one can flatter him. No one can trap him. No one can discredit him. The reader of Mark is left knowing that if Jesus is arrested and condemned to die, it will, not be, it will not be because Jesus was deceived or trapped. It will not be because Jesus did anything wrong. He's not a political zealot or a religious lunatic. He is the Son of God. And these interactions prove it. As I think about this story, I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't give in. I'm so prone to give in to flattery or to be trapped by my own sinful desires, all kinds of things. And Jesus doesn't give in. He passes the test with flying colors. 
This story gives us courage that as we face all kinds of difficulties and unknowns, Jesus can't be fooled by the future. Like, he can't be fooled by your problems or by your sin. Like, his plan is best. He's in control. His plan is good. We can trust him. So, brothers and sisters, like, let's study the text. Let's love our God. Um, Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, please show us yourself through your text, through your scriptures. We confess we often don't desire to know you. We don't make time in our schedules to do that. We often just don't care. We go throughout our days completely um, absent of you. And we, we want to be people who know you. We want to be people who are encouraged by these massive realities. You are the covenant-keeping, ever-living God. So please, cause our hearts to desire to know you and to know your word. Give us grace to sacrifice time to study your word, to know who you are. Give us grace to boldly obey. And Father, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face and you will live among us. So please come quickly. I pray these things in your name. Amen.